Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Question, how do you know the Bible is true? Because God wrote it? Well, how do you know God wrote it? Well, It's because the Bible says God wrote it. But then again, we have to ask, how do you know the Bible is true? Here we encounter the classic circular argument for the Bible's inspiration. Surely there's a better way to go about establishing God's influence on this book. In this episode, we'll take a look at three main comparative texts from the same part of the world and same time as the Bible was written, including the Enuma Elish, the Code of Hammurabi, and the Ebers Papyrus. By comparing the Bible to these Babylonian and Egyptian texts, we can see just how unusual it was in its own context. This, in turn, helps us have more confidence that God, in fact, did work with the authors of this book, providing them with an alternative source of information that cut against the grain of the wisdom of their age. I've got a couple of quick announcements afterwards. Please stay tuned for a couple of coming up events. Here now is episode 155, God's Book. I want to go about making the case that the Bible is God's book. And I taught on this subject a year ago, uh, last October. And when I shared then, I mentioned 10 reasons to believe that the Bible is true. So if you want to look at that, and today gets you curious, because I'm not going to cover those 10 reasons. I, I, I want to give you something fresh and something that you will find interesting no matter which perspective you're coming from. But if you want to look at the, the 10 classic reasons for believing the Bible is true, you can find that on our website. Uh, I made a link, lhim.org slash Godspeaks. So if you want to look at that, that is available. In that, uh, it's a YouTube video. In that video, I have multiple hours of more material on this subject. And uh, I don't know if you feel this way, but in our secular climate, upstate New York, the most post-Christian area, according to Barna, in the entire United States is Albany, Schenectady, Troy. I don't know if you're already aware of that or not. That when you're talking to people, you can't just quote a Bible verse and expect them to accept it as true. All right? And so... I I suspect that most of you already have a faith position on the Bible, but I want to uh, equip you, and well, encourage you as well, but equip you to be able to talk to others on this subject and be able to give some some reason for it. Essentially, the biblical statement on itself is 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. You can't really prove that somebody should believe in the Bible. You can give them evidence in that direction, but you can't absolutely prove it and be like, and that's why you have to believe in it. God just doesn't work that way. He lets people have their own free choice. And it's like this guy over here on the cliff. Has anybody ever jumped off a cliff? Into water, into, just to clarify. And I'm not asking about base jumping here. I was, I was on an island in Lake George this past summer and it was a different island I had never been on before, and, and we found a cliff there. Uh, my boys and I, we, we found this cliff. It looked like the sort of cliff you should jump off of. And 
yet I wasn't sure. So what did I do? I, I, I went to the edge carefully, and I looked down, wanted to see if the water appeared to be deep enough, and I started to gather evidence for the safety or unsafety of this situation, because I wasn't just going to jump. But no matter how much evidence I gathered, I could never be sure until I jumped if it was safe, 100%. Fortunately, while we were standing there at the top, a motorboat pulled up, and a bunch of young guys came off the motorboat, climbed up a rope that was in the side of the cliff, and jumped off in front of us. And we're like, well, that's pretty good evidence that it's safe. And uh, so, so, we, so we jumped. And um, so that's, that's my point about when it comes to the Bible. It's like, I can offer you evidence, I can offer you reasons, historical facts, and that sort of thing. But uh, there, there's always going to be, have to be a step of faith. I don't think that's a leap of faith into the darkness. I think it's a leap of faith into the light. Uh, and it's in the direction of evidence. It's not contra- I don't think faith is contrary to evidence. Like, everything's telling me this is wrong, and so I'm still going to believe it. No, that's, that's not the biblical definition of faith. Uh, biblically, faith is trust in sound reasons. And Jesus said that a lot, too, in his own ministry. Don't believe it just because I say it. Believe it because of my works. So, before going on and uh, talking about the, uh, the Bible some more, I want to talk about chronological snobbery. This is C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book called Surprised by Joy in 1955. And I think this is, this is really an important term. He says, the uncritical, this is chronological snobbery, the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. So this is the idea that just because something is old, it's dumb or not to be trusted. And since we're talking about the Bible this morning, I want to sensitize you to the fallacy of chronological snobbery. We don't want to just think, oh, well, the Bible's old, it's pre-modern, we're in a post-modern society now, therefore it has nothing valuable to say. Well, that's just bias. That's just, that's just your uncritical acceptance of the present day's intellectual climate. To get started, I want to talk about how weird the Bible is. Um, that's actually my main strategy, is to talk about how weird the Bible is, and on the basis of that, to, to make the claim that therefore it's God's book and not just the work of humans. Uh, so this is a little table of different books and the number of languages each book is translated into. So up, up top we have the Quran, which was written in Arabic. It's been translated into 50 languages. The Lord of the Rings made it into 56. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, 65. Harry Potter, 80. Book of Mormon, 110. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, 174. Dao De Jing, uh, it's a Chinese book, uh, 250 languages. The Little Prince was French, 300 languages. Pinocchio, the Italians really uh, came out with a bestseller there, huh? Uh, over 300 languages for Pinocchio. And so, you know, then you have the Bible. And as you can tell by the, the way I've arranged this, obviously the Bible's going to win. But, you know, if I was like following the flow, the sort of like trend of the data here, I would say, well, the Bible probably has 350. Or maybe it has 400 languages. As it turns out, it's 674 languages that the Bible has been translated into. Every time I've looked at that statistic, by the way, it's higher than the last time I looked at it. When I started looking at this stat, it was at 500 and something. It's now 674. By next year, probably 700. That's weird. I'm not saying that means the Bible's true because it's super popular among people of different languages. I'm just saying, look, that should get your attention. Like, huh, 
and this is a lot, a lot of this has to do with the United Bible Societies and their work. They've got the Bible accessible to 5.4 billion people on the planet out of 7.6. This is from 2017. So that's, that's pretty impressive, but they've got a long way to go. They've got a lot more languages they're, they're working on. Now, what about sales? Let's talk about sales. Uh, show me the money, right? So War and Peace, the Russian book, had 36 million copies sold. The Odyssey, which is ancient Greek, Homer, that's 45 million. 100 Years of Solitude, a Spanish book, 50 million. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, a French book. I didn't realize that Jules Verne was French, but he is. 60 million. Pinocchio, 80 million. Dream of the Red Chamber, Chinese book, 100 million. Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, 120 million. The Little Prince, which is a French uh, kids' book, 140 million. The Lord of the Rings, surprisingly, right? Because the Lord of the Rings didn't have that many translations, right? I mean, it had. Uh, 56 languages, but those people, they bought a lot of copies, I guess. I don't know. 150 million copies of the Lord of the Rings. So now, what would you guess the Bible would be? You know, what? 200 million? 300 million? A billion, right? Like, you'd be like, all right, a billion. You know, if the Bible sold a billion copies, that would be really impressive, right? According to the Guinness Book of World Records, uh, the best, the the winner for the best-selling book of nonfiction is the Bible, and uh, their data is so slim, too. It's, it just started in 1815, and, it, and they stopped counting in, like, 1990-something. And they already got to 5 billion. You know, like, there, there's a point where, like, you're winning by so much that it's like, all right, whatever. We, we give up, <laughs> right? Uh, just to give you some perspective on this, I did a little math. Assuming two inches per book for The Lord of the Rings. I, don't, I didn't have a copy, so I just guessed it would be two inches thick. Uh, if you had 150 million of those, that works out to 4,735 miles. That's if you took the Lord of the Rings and put them side by side like on a shelf. And it, it would go essentially past Alaska from here. Uh, so since the United States is 2,800 miles, uh, it would easily get coast to coast for all the Lord of the Rings side by side. But if you drove to Anchorage, that's 4,385 miles. So you'd still have another 300 miles to go. You could probably get to Russia from here. Uh, with the Lord of the Rings. Now, assuming one and a half inches for the Bible, and of course there's five billion, this adds up to 118,371 miles. The earth is only 24,000 miles around at the equator. So that means that the number of Bibles sold from 1815 today stacked side by side would go around the entire earth 4.7 times. That's weird. That's all I'm trying to say. Like, what is the deal with the Bible? And, and we're not talking about ancient manuscripts. We're talking about modern book sales. Why is it that there are this many Bibles sold all around the world? And this is not even a new phenomenon. If you look at ancient manuscripts, the Bible just dominates there, too. I mean, you get like Homer with 643 or Demosthenes with 200. The Bible has in ancient copies, 5,000, I mean, it's just like an embarrassing, it's like an embarrassing number, 5,735 compared to any of these other ancient, very well-respected historical documents. So my point is the, the Bible is, is unusual, and there are different ways to, describe, to, to explain that. You'd be like, well, you know, for whatever reason, people, they just, they're drawn to it. Okay, or maybe, maybe it's God's book. Because if it's God's book, he would be able to write a book in such a way that it, it would sort of like match human need. Uh, so that's obviously my, where I'm coming from. This is Ernst Trelch. He had some pretty sweet glasses. Can you see that? Uh, 
And he, he was part of a, uh, a movement of scholars in the 19th century. You really want me to say that word, don't you? Yeah. Uh, religions geschichte lika schule. It's pretty close, right, Kurt? Maybe I miss a, a syllable in there. But this is, this is a scholarly endeavor in the 19th century to find comparable literature to the Bible. And actually, these were critical scholars trying to disprove the uniqueness of the Bible, which you know, I'm not down for that. But I, I think uh, you can look at the same stuff that they discovered and, and show how unusual the Bible is, how awesome it is. And so that's, that's what I want to do with you this morning. Uh, I have this in your, your program notes as well, but essentially I want to look at three ancient documents, the Enuma Elish, the Code of Hammurabi, and Eber's Papyrus. These are all things I expect you, have never, you will have never heard of. Maybe some of you have. That's great. But what I want to do is uh, compare the Bible to the sorts of literature that were written around the same time in the same part of the world as the Bible. And I think when we do that, the Bible is even more impressive. So the Enuma Elish here is an ancient creation story. It's found on seven clay tablets uh, in what's called cuneiform, uh, an ancient language, Akkadian. These tablets here are dated to the 7th century before Christ, but they, scholars believe that the original story went back all the way to the first Babylonian dynasty, which would have been between 1900 and 1600 B.C. So this is really, really, really ancient creation account uh, from, from a society that was in the Middle East, popular around the time of Moses and the Israelites and their original writings and that sort of thing. So let's take a look at the competitor. So this is from Tablet 1. It says, When the heavens above did not exist and the earth beneath had not come into being, there was Apsu, the first in order, their begetter, the Demiurge, Tiamat, who gave birth to them all. They had mingled their waters together before metal land had coalesced and reed bed was to be found, when not one of the gods had been formed or had come into being, when no destinies had been decreed, the gods were created within them. I'm going to take for you excerpts out of this. I mean, it's like probably a thousand lines. We're not going to read the whole thing, okay? But I'm, I'm just going to get to you the main plot line for how the ancient Babylonians said our universe came to be. You've got these two main people here, gods, Apsu and Tiamat. Uh, Apsu is the boy god, Tiamat is the girl god, they're kind of married, they're going to have kids. Lamu and Lahamu were formed and came into being, that would be their kids, kid gods. There's no universe yet. Their clamor got loud, throwing Tiamat into turmoil. That happens to my wife, Ruth, with our son Ezra. His clamor, how did they put it? The clamor got loud, throwing <laughs> Tiamat into turmoil, right? Nobody gets any sleep. They jarred the nerves of Tiamat, poor mom, right? And by their dancing, they spread alarm in Anduruna. Apsu did not diminish their clamor, so his dad couldn't get control of it. And Tiamat was silent when confronted with them. Their conduct was displeasing to her, yet though their behavior was not good, she wished to spare them. Apsu, dad, opened his mouth and addressed Tiamat. Their behavior has become displeasing to me, and I cannot rest in the daytime or sleep at night. I will destroy and break up their way of life, that silence may reign and we may sleep. So dad's solution is, let's kill the kids. And mom is not in favor of that, okay? When Tiamat heard this, she raged and cried out to her spouse, how can we destroy what we have given birth to? Mumu spoke up with the counsel for Apsu. Destroy my father that lawless way of life that you may rest in the daytime and sleep by night. Apsu was pleased with him. His face beamed. So dad's like, all right, you're right, Mumu, whoever that is. We are going to kill the kids because they're just too crazy. Uh, the gods heard it and were frantic. 
Ea, so everyone is, is worried about like Apsu who's going to kill the kids. Ea, who's like a higher god who knows everything, perceived their tricks. He, Ea, put Apsu to slumber as he poured out sleep. He bound Apsu and killed him. Anu formed and gave birth to the four went. So uh, the high god ends up killing Apsu. So then now Tiamat is a single mom and she has these kids. They're, they're, they're gods. But, you know, everything seems like it's okay and everybody's happy. And then this new god here, Anu, comes on the picture and gives birth to the four winds, and he made a wave to bring consternation on Tiamat. Tiamat was confounded day and night. She was frantic. The gods took no rest. In their minds, they plotted evil and addressed their mother, Tiamat. The four dreadful winds have been fashioned to throw you into confusion, and we cannot sleep. And as for us who cannot rest, you do not love us. Consider our burden. Our eyes are hollow. So the kids are saying to mom, we can't sleep. There's all this noise. Uh, 123 here, make battle, avenge them. Tiamat heard the speech, pleased her. She said, let us make demons as you have advised. They conceived evil against the gods. So Tiamat and her offspring decide to make all these monsters. And these monsters are going to fight against these other gods. We're going to have a good old-fashioned epic god battle. Uh, so on tablet four, it continues. And now Marduk comes in the picture. Marduk is the patron god of Babylon. So you know he's the hero. This is the Babylonian creation account. So Marduk is going to be awesome. They, they rejoice and offer congratulations. Marduk is the king. They added to him a mace, a throne, and a rod. They gave him an irresistible weapon that overwhelms the foe. They said, go cut Tiamat's throat. Tiamat and Marduk, the sage of the gods, came together, joining in strife, drawing near to battle. Bel, another name for Marduk, spread out his net and enmeshed her. He let loose, this is the god battle, picture in your mind, it's big creatures fighting. Uh, he, he let loose the evil wind, the rear guard, in her face. You know, he, he basically blew in her face. Tiamat opened her mouth to swallow it. She let the evil wind in so that she could not close her lips. The fierce winds weighed down her belly. Her inwards were distended, and she opened her mouth wide. He let fly an arrow and pierced her belly. He tore open her entrails and slit her inwards. He bound her and extinguished her life. He threw down her corpse and stood on it. That would be a victory for Team Marduk against uh, Tiamat. Now, you remember what this is, right? This is a creation story. Let's keep going. <laughs> Bell placed his feet on the lower parts of Tiamat and with his merciless club smashed her skull. It's a bit brutal. Sorry about that. Uh, he, he severed her arteries. <laughs> Bell rested, surveying the corpse. In order to divide the lump by a clever scheme, he split her in two like a dried fish. One half of her he set up and stretched out as the heavens. So that's where we got the sky. Half of Tiamat, now you understand, right? It all makes sense. You're like, oh, I always wonder like, where the sky came from. It's half of Tiamat. He stretched his skin and appointed a watch with the instruction not to let her waters escape. Because everybody knows waters do escape sometimes from the sky. We call that rain. Tablet 5, he says, he fashioned heavenly stations for the great gods. He set up constellations, the patterns, and the stars. So Marduk is creating the universe. He appointed the year, marked off divisions. He set up three stars. And uh, so on. Look at the bottom there. Number 11, he placed the heights of heaven in her, Tiamat's belly. He created Nanar, trusting to him the night. How about this one right here, number 54? He opened the abyss and it was sated with water. From her two eyes, he let the Euphrates and the Tigris flow. He blocked her nostrils. He heaped up distant mountains on her breasts. He bored wells to channel the springs. Uh, thus he stretched her out and made it firm as the earth. Uh, and then, so that's the creation of the universe. Clear? Now let's get to people. Where do, where do people come from? 
So Marduk says, I will bring together blood to form bone. I will bring into being Lulu, whose name shall be man. Did you know that that's your real name as a species? Lulu? Lulu? I, I don't even know how to say that. On whom the toil of the gods, this is key, the toil of the gods will be laid that they may rest. That's the purpose of humankind, according to ancient Babylonian stories of creation. We exist to make it easier for the gods so that they can have rest. We'll do the work. They can rest. Uh, Marduk assembled the great gods. Who was the one who instigated warfare? Who made Tiamat rebel and set up battle in motion? Well, it was Quingu. Quingu is the one who instigated warfare. They inflicted the penalty on him and severed his blood vessels. From his blood, he, Ea, created mankind on whom he imposed the service of the gods and set the gods free. And that's, that's where uh, the world came from. All right, now let's look at Genesis chapter 1. As a compare, sorry that was a little long, but it's, it's hard to like just read a line from that and get the picture. Um, if, if you read a lot more, then you're like, you really get kind of swept up in the whole God battle scene, uh, which is interesting. Genesis 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Where's the conflict? Where's the conflict? Where are the other gods? Where's the chaos? Where's the effort? Right? Look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And then another God arose and said, no, I don't like light, I like darkness. And then there was a battle. No. No. God unilaterally creates. He speaks, and it happens. Now, when I, if I ask you the question, what's weird? Genesis 1 or the Enuma Elish? If you could remember how to say it, you'd probably say Enuma Elish, right? Wrong. Enuma Elish was already around and it's characteristic of ancient stories of creation. Genesis 1 is weird. You're just familiar with it. From a historical point of view, Genesis 1 would have been bizarre. If you were reading it in that culture, you'd be like, all right, what about all the other gods? What about the, there's no battle here. You read all of Genesis chapter 1. It's just, it's so, it's so ordered, right? Day after day, day 1, day 2, day 3, right? And then what, what about the purpose of humans? Look at verse 26. According to Genesis, the purpose of humans is, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So what's, what's the purpose of hu humankind? It's not, it's not to like, make God's life easy. <laughs> I don't think we've done that at all. <laughs> not even a little. I think what we've done, or what he did for us, is, is he made us, and he's like, here, be in charge. Rule over everything. You're like me. You know, we're made in His image. There's a likeness between us. That's totally contrary to what we just read in the Enuma Elish. Are you ready for the second one? All right. Well, anyhow, we're going to go on. Whether you're ready or not, this is the code of Hammurabi. It's a seven-foot piece of basalt etched in Akkadian that looks like an index finger. Um, and this comes from, uh, this was discovered in 1901 in Susa, Khuzestan, Iran. And it has 44 columns and 282 laws on it. 
Uh, and there are also other copies of the Code of Hammurabi. The Code of Hammurabi was a law system for ancient Babylon. Okay, so let's take a look. This will be much briefer than the Enuma Elish quote, okay? So just stay with me here. This is the way ancient people uh, did law in that part of the world. Uh, this is law number 192. If a son of a paramour, this is kind of like a girlfriend. If a son of a paramour or a prostitute say to his adoptive father or mother, you are not my father or my mother, his tongue shall be cut off. All he did here was say, you're not my re real parents, which is technically true. They're, they're not biological if you're adopted, uh, but you get your tongue cut off for that. 193, if the son of a paramour or a prostitute desire his father's house and desert his adoptive father, so that means you go back to your birth parents, and he goes to his father's house, then he shall his eye be put out. If a man give his child to a nurse, this is gross, so sorry about that. If a man give his child to a nurse and the child die in her hands, but the nurse, unbeknown to the father and mother, nurse another child, then they shall convict her of having nursed another child without the knowledge of the father and mother, and her breast shall be cut off. Ouch. 195, if a son strike his father, his hands shall be hewn off. If a man put out the eye of another man, his eye shall be put out. Uh, if he break another man's bone, his bone shall be broken. If he put out the eye of a freed man or break the bone of a freed man, he shall pay one gold mina. If he put out the eye of a man's slave or break the bone of a man's slave, he shall pay one half of its value. So uh, in ancient Babylon, right, if you put out the eye, okay, so let's say Candace put out the eye of Timmy Paul, okay, and let's say they're both like higher status people, you know, like landowners. Uh, if that was the case, if she put out his eye, then you know, he would take her to court and they would put out her eye as punishment for that. That's, that's easy. That makes sense, right? That's Lex Talionis, the law of ret retribution. Okay, but now let's say Candace instead put out Walthmar's eye over here, and he's, he's a freedman. So he had been a slave, but he got freed, so he's lower status. In that case, you take her to court for putting out your eye, right? Uh, she just has to pay one gold mina, but you don't get to take her eye. Now, if you uh, take out a slave's eye, uh, you just have to pay half the price for a new slave. So what does this tell you? This tells you that human value depends on human status in the society for this law code. If a man knock out the teeth of his equal, his teeth shall be knocked out. If he knock out the teeth of a freed man, he shall pay one-third of a golden mina. If someone strike the body of a man higher in rank, then he shall receive 60 blows with an ox whip in public. That'll get your attention. If a freeborn man strike the body of another freeborn man or equal rank, he shall pay one gold mina. If a free man strike the body of another freed man, he shall pay 10 shekels in money. If the slave of a freed man strike the body of a freed man, his ear shall be cut off. All right, so let's compare that to Deuteronomy 15. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 15 and see how, you know, because uh, once again, this is the standard, what I'm reading to you is the standard law code that ruled over a huge swath of the ancient Middle East in the time when Israel was uh, coming into that land, before they came into that land, and then once they were in that land, the Canaanites, for example, that were living in the land, they would, they would be familiar with the law of Hammurabi. And there are, lots of, there are lots of good things in the law of Hammurabi as well, lots of uh, things that were helpful for society. I'm, I'm just focusing on the more brutal aspects of it here, just to make a point. Uh, but Deuteronomy 15, verse 1 says, At the end of every seven years you shall grant a release 
how many of you would like that in our land today? Every seven years, whatever debts you have, clear. Some, some of you would like that. Not if you're a banker or loaning the money out, but if you're, like most of us, on the borrowing end of the money, uh, that would be a nice law. Uh, verse 2, and this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact of his neighbor his brother because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. If a foreigner, you may exact it, but whatever is of yours, if with your brother, your hand shall release. Verse 4, there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as He promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. All right. So that's, that's clear, right? God's going to bless them. They need to follow His ways. One of His ways is that every seven years they forgive the debts, whoever owes any money, which I think is where the bankruptcy seven-year rule came from in America. Uh, verse 7, If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all you undertake. For there never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand, to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. So you have somebody that's poor, they're struggling this year for whatever reason, maybe their crops didn't grow like everybody else's, or maybe they slacked off, or maybe invaders came. There could be a thousand reasons why something would go wrong today or in ancient times, right? Uh, and you know, maybe they spent all their money on lotto tickets and then they didn't win the lottery. So I think some people just did that. But uh, you know, there's lots of reasons uh, to be poor. And so what God says to them is like, look, take care of each other. Take care of each other. I want you to, I want you to open your hand to the poor. Be generous, generous to each other. And then we see in verse 12, this is the worst case scenario. You're poor, you can't pay a debt, so you sell yourself or your family into slavery. Uh, verse 12, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of the threshing floor, out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. Verse 16. But then, if, you know, if they don't want to leave, you can make them a, a permanent servant. You pierce their ear. What I find so, so striking about the way the Bible talks about slavery and the way the Bible talks about ancient economics uh, over against the way the Code of Hammurabi does is, first of all, the brutality is missing. You know, the whole, like, cut-off body parts thing, it's not there. And then the other thing is that there's, there's a brutality of heart. You read the Code of Hammurabi, all of it, it's, it's not that long. You can read it in one sitting. Uh, if you read all of it, you, you, you come away with a sense of cold justice. You know, you did something wrong, something wrong's going to happen, or a fine, or it's, it's just cold justice. 
Now, in the Torah, in, in the law of Moses that we have in our Bibles, especially in Deuteronomy, there's lots of justice, but it's a warm justice where you're supposed to look at your, at, at your fellow person as your brother, as your sister, a, a, as somebody to have compassion on. He says, you know, even with the lowest status people in your society, the slaves, right? First of all, you're supposed to release them after so many years. And second of all, you're supposed to remember that you were a slave. You were all slaves when I found you, essentially, is what God says to them, right? He says, you were slaves in Egypt, so have compassion. This whole idea of compassion is completely absent in the Code of Hammurabi. So once again, you're used to the compassion, so when I show you the brutality, you're like, oh, I don't want to live there. That's normal. The Bible's weird. The Bible is coming into a culture that already thought this way about justice. And yet, there's, there's all this, this business about how God cares about people and how he, how he wants to bless them, and God's very involved in this chapter in particular. All right, on to the last, last one. Let's look at the Ebers papyrus. This was uh, this actual picture of it. It was found in 1862, supposedly with a mummy in a tomb on the west bank of the Nile. And uh, so George Ebers bought it in 1872. That's why it's called the Ebers papyrus. And he was a professor of Egyptology. And now, well, when he died, it, it, it remained at the University of uh, Leipzig. And so it's 110 sheets long. It's, it's huge. 60, if we rolled it out, it would be 66 feet uh, long, 110 sheets. And it's got hundreds and hundreds of medical prescriptions uh, dated to around 1550 B.C., which, think about it, was right around the time Moses was a boy, depending on how you, how you calculate everything out. But, I mean, either it was, it was right around the time when he was very young or it was, you know, before he was born, but, you know, in the time when the Israelites would have been there. I mean, around that same time when Israel was in Egypt. So, looking at the Ebers papyrus, what do we get? We get the standard medical knowledge of the most advanced civilization in the world, which was Egypt at that time. And uh, so, this is what it says. This, I'm, I have to apologize. This is right before lunch. I should have thought about that. Anyhow... It's better to do it before lunch than after lunch. That's for sure. What to do to draw out splinters in the flesh. So this is an ancient document on how to handle that. The perbate bait bird, whatever that is, with honey, apply there too. Another prescription is uh, worm's blood, cook and crush in oil, mole, kill, cook, and drain in oil, ass's dung, mix in fresh milk. I'm glad the milk was fresh. Uh, <laughs> apply, to the, apply to the opening. I mean, think about that. If you put that crap, on your <laughs> splinter, what is that going to do? Excrement is loaded with tetanus, I mean, and, and all kinds of bacteria and other stuff, right? All right, here's another one. Uh, I couldn't, now, just for the record, there are practical good prescriptions in this, like, 700-plus collection. Uh, I'm just picking the really gross ones, so, uh, anyhow, another remedy for the filming over which rises in the eye uh, dried excrement from the body of a child, honey, put in fresh milk, then apply to the eyes. So uh, your poop wouldn't work. It has to be from a child, all right? And then that'll, that'll make your eye better, I guess. Another against blindness, the two, <laughs> the two eyes of a pig, remove the water therefrom, true calurium, red lead, wild honey, crushed powder, make into one, inject into the ear of the patient. Now this is for an eye problem. <laughs> 
<laughs> just to clarify. Therefore, at once he will recover. When thou hast seen properly to this mixing, repeat this magic formula. I have brought this thing and put it in its place. The crocodile is weak and powerless. Twice. All right. I have brought this thing and put it in its place. The crocodile is weak and powerless. All right. Uh, here's, here's another one. When something evil has happened to the eye, put it, a human brain, divide into halves. To one half add honey and anoint the eye therewith in the evening. Dry the other half, crush powder, and anoint the eye therewith in the morning. That is the grossest thing ever. Right? That's pretty bad. All right, I'm almost done. I want to look at skin care because Leviticus talks about a lot of skin care, uh, and that's our comparison point. This is uh, quoting from the book where you find the translation. This book by uh, uh, this, this fellow, Brian. Further heroic measures were employed or recommended when scabs in every limb appeared. First, an endeavor was made to coax them away with a poultice of clay from the wall, which actually might have worked, wheat and flour and fat of the deher animal, strained in the yeast of sweet beer. Yes, they had beer. If they resisted this, another poultice was at hand. Cyprus from the marshes, cypress from the fields, cypress knots, and red corn were crushed in fresh oil, goose oil, and semen. But even if this failed on occasion, other remedies followed. Another wasp's dung in the milk of a sycamore. Put on the ulcer until it falls off. Uh, this is my favorite one, because the person writing this, the person writing this was a scribe. Uh, after it has fallen off, put thereon scribe's excrement, mix it thoroughly in fresh milk, and applies a poultice. Or how about this one? Another cure for, this is skin problems, right? Tops of the cedar tree, mix with the milk of a woman who has borne a son and applies a poultice. So you can't, you know, if you had daughters, your milk is, no, is not valid for this. Um, I was just saying anything about my wife who had many sons. All right, Leviticus 13, let's take a look at this. So that, Eber's papyrus, once again, that is the way uh, sophisticated people in Egypt thought and treated a variety of different afflictions, okay? Now, Moses was trained, he was raised in the palace in Egypt. Do you think he had access to some of their education? Yeah, he was raised in all the wisdom of Egypt. So, what should we find when we read Leviticus talking about skin care? We should find potions. We should find potions. Let's take a look. Leviticus 13. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, when a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought before Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priest, and they will poop in a bucket and mix it with fresh milk and put it on his skin. No, it doesn't say that. Does your Bible say that? Because you might need to upgrade. Um, <laughs> verse 3, what does it say? It says, and the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body, and if the hair is in the diseased area has turned white, the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the spot, verse 4, is white in the skin of his body and appears no deeper than the skin, then the hair and it is not turned white, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days. So there's no potion. Where's the potion, guys? Where's the, where's the elixir, the, the miracle cure? It's not there. It's not there. You read Leviticus. This is standard operating procedure. What they do is they take somebody, if somebody has one of these skin diseases called leprosy, and there's a multitude of them, 
what they would do is they would take that person and they would bring that person to the priest, whoever could read the book of Leviticus and knew about it, and that person would examine the skin to see what was going on, and if they weren't sure, they would quarantine that person for seven days. Now look, ancient people didn't know about germs. Germ theory is like only a couple hundred years old. So this is weird. Potions are normal. This is weird. Um, And then verse 5, the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. If in his eyes the disease is checked and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall shut him up for another seven days. And the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day. And then there would be a ritual cleansing if that person was still good, good to go, wasn't spreading. There would be a ritual cleansing where they would sprinkle uh, water and and other stuff on that person. But that wasn't to cleanse the person. This is after the, the person was healed to ritually purify a person so they could once again participate in worship and in the community. So, I mean, it's, it's absolutely stunning that if Moses grew up in Egypt, that he wrote Leviticus later, that he would not have any of these potions and, and cures that the Egyptians used. And a lot of their, I didn't show you the stuff with the onions, they had stuff that actually worked too. Moses doesn't use any of that either. It's almost as if Moses isn't making up the book of Leviticus. You know, some people, they they question that Moses wrote the book of Leviticus. That doesn't even matter. So whatever Israelite it was, they weren't making it up. There's some other source to this. I mean, if you're socially engineering a people and you want them to be healthy, you give them these laws and it will help them so they will have fewer diseases, fewer sicknesses, fewer economic catastrophes and stuff like that. Uh, go ahead to Psalm 19. I want to close there. So where did all this come from? I mean, it, you know, the Bible, it's obviously not a product of Egypt. It's not a product of Babylonia, Mesopotamia, Sumer, these places, Persia. I mean, it doesn't, it, it's weird to them. To us, it's normal because it's shaped our civilization for centuries. So we're used to it. But the fact is, the Bible is unusual and it's, it's, it was relevant to life then, and it would have kept you alive in those days. But you know what? It's relevant to life today as well, and it will keep you alive today, and especially in a time like ours. The, the mindset I, I like is to, to think of is that God's the designer. And so if God puts the, certain boundaries on our lives and says, all right, well, if you want to do marriage, for example then you have to be faithful to your spouse. And that's a boundary he puts on marriage, and it's like, all right, well, why does he give us that boundary? Is it, is it to oppress us, to restrict us, to limit our reaching of our human potential? No. He puts those boundaries in place because he understands how he made us, and these are for our good, and it's for human flourishing. It's not, it's not to destroy us. Um, and so God made you for himself. I love this line from Augustine. He says, because God has made us for himself, our hearts are restless until they rest in him. And this is another factor about the Bible, the simple fact that, you know, if you do believe that God inspired it, that God speaks through Scripture, that it's really his book, which I think is is a very reasonable position to hold, then when you read Scripture, you're not reading just Moses or uh, Matthew or Joshua or whoever... You're actually encountering God's words. That's pretty awesome if you really think about it. I know we we get used to the idea because we're we're reading our Bibles. But there is some some wisdom for life here and help for our hearts that really makes a difference. Uh, And what's the alternative, right? You live for your career. 
You sacrifice everything for your career. You get ahead. You, you, you get famous or you make a lot of money or you make a mark on your field. And then what? You sacrifice your relationships. You sacrifice your health. You sacrifice everything else. You know what happens? Then what? Some other young person is climbing up that same mountain and they knock you off. That happens over and over again. It doesn't matter if you're an athlete or uh, an investor or an author. Whatever you, there's always someone else that's climbing up trying to knock you down. It's exhausting at the top. And then, what if you live for relationships? You live for people. If you anchor your sense of purpose and meaning in people, you know what the problem is with people? Well, there's not one problem with us, is there? We have, a lot of, we have lots of problems. But it's not a sufficient place to hold your, your soul anchor in another person because they will always let you down. And even if they are the most faithful friend or lover there has ever been, eventually, you know what? They die. That's one of the things that we do, right? So then what? If your whole reason for living is, is wrapped up in some other person or, or some other people, whether it's your kids, your parents, your friends, your, your spouse, then eventually they will let you down. Uh, I love this quote by David Foster Wallace. I've shared it before. Uh, but he says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. So what he's saying here is that if you want to live for any of these other things other than what the Bible t teaches us about, living for God, you're, and he's an atheist. He's saying these things are going to let you down. They're going to crush you under, under themselves because there's none of these things that can actually carry your heart. Uh, so let's close in Psalm 19, uh, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Isn't that beautiful? Verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. So what am I, what am I saying to you? I'm saying to you that the, the, the Bible is God's book. And because it's God's book, it contains within it life. And it's the kind of life that you can't make for yourself in, in coming up with these other competing ideas of things to live for. But it's true life from the one who invented life, God himself. And so it makes sense that we would spend time reading it, wouldn't you say? All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for providing for us insight into our own lives, into the, the, the way the world works, into your own heart through your scriptures. I pray that you would give us a thirst, a hunger, a desire to read your book, to study it, to meditate upon it, to talk about it when we stand up, when we sit down when we lie down with our children, with our friends, that we would be people who marvel at your majesty, 
and Your love and Your compassion and Your truth that You have preserved for us. We ask for Your help in in this and also for uh, help in reaching out to others so that they can taste and see that You are good. I pray and ask for Your blessing on the rest of our uh, morning and afternoon here today in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thanks for sticking it out to the end here. I just wanted to let you know that that other teaching about 10 reasons to believe the Bible is true, I do have a link for that in the show notes for the, today, as well as other resources on the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible from my apologetics class at the Atlanta Bible College. As far as the events go, I just want to pitch to you two quick events and let you know about them in case you're interested. The first is a teen camp. It's our winter teen camp. It's a three. It's a two-night, three-day event held at Living Faith Christian Church in Warwick, Rhode Island, December 28th to the 30th. And you can get more information about that at winterteencamp.com. That will redirect you to the Living Faith website about the event. It's a weekend for teens to learn about God and spend time together building relationships and serving the community. The early bird rate is only $60 for those who register by December 9th. And after that, it is going to be $75. But still, incredibly inexpensive to go. And we do that so that people can participate. I coordinate this event with Victor Glucken, the pastor of Living Faith, and Sherry Roach, as well as Sarah Jane Rounds. So get more information about that if you have teens or if you know any teens that would be interested. It's a great way to spend that few extra days after Christmas, but before New Year's when kids are off school. Secondly, we have Revive 2019 coming up. Revive is a high-energy event for young adults held at Woodstock, Connecticut, January 4th to 6th, 2019. You can get more information about that at lhim.org slash revive. That's Living Hope International Ministries, lhim.org slash revive. It's a time to enjoy uh, worship and spending time with other believers. The theme this year is wisdom looking at the wisdom literature in the Bible, including Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, and last of all, of course, Jesus, one who is greater than Solomon. It's $146 per person. Please register if you know you're coming so we can get a good count. Last year, we had over 70 young adults who came. So if you're interested or you know a young adult who would be interested, college age or young professional, please send them the information, and this way they can get to know other believers. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.